What's the science behind chemical evolution? Isn't it reasonable to believe that life originated from non-life? That's our topic today on Creation Magazine Live. The Bible's history is supported by scientific observations, and we'll tell you about it on today's podcast. Welcome to Creation Magazine Live. I'm Richard Fangrad. And I'm Calvin Smith. Our topic today is uh, abiogenesis, life from lifelessness. That's a a part of the evolutionary story. Now, Now, normally on Creation Magazine Live, we talk about evidence for the accuracy of the Genesis record and, uh, and a recent creation and the scientific problems with evolution. But today we're tackling something that's on an entirely different level. It's a part of the evolutionary story right. uh, about how we all got here that contradicts a known scientific law. <laughs> that's right. So a little, little higher than we normally go here. Yeah, we're talking about the law of biogenesis. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, in 1864, after a series of experiments, uh, Louis Pasteur uh, demonstrated that life does not arise from non-life. So he disproved spontaneous generation, um, and, and the, you know the idea that life forms uh, in a variety of places all by itself and yeah. through naturalistic yeah. processes. So. Um, this basic law is foundational to biology. You're not going to find a biologist that says, you know, oh, well, life, you know, life can be seen to come from non-life. Right, but evolution requires that law to be broken. Exactly. They, they require spontaneous generation. They call it by a different name today, yeah. uh, different names and so on. But it's, it's spontaneous generation, life whichever way you slice it. coming from non-life. Yes. Right? Yeah. yeah. And so since that's a law a long time ago, it contradicts a known scientific law. So far from being just a difficult scientific problem for evolution, this, this is on a whole different level. It's actually, right. they're basically arguing for a miracle, is, is what they're arguing, something outside of science. That's right. So when, when somebody says to you, well, I'm an, I'm, a, I'm an atheist, I'm an evolutionist, and I'm, I'm logical, and I'm rational, and I'm reasonable, and, and, and you know, I believe in science. Yeah, okay. And, oh, you just ask them, well, where did life come from? Well, life came from non-living chemicals. Well, that means that this scientific law that's in place is undisputed, uh, as far as observations go, right? right? Nobody has observed life coming from non-life. So if you're going to be scientific, what you're actually saying is that this law, which is one of the most well-proven laws that we have, isn't actually a law because you believe without any evidence that in the past it was broken. It's but broken. if you break yeah. a law one time, it's no longer a law. Right. So you actually have to, you have to be anti-science to believe in evolution. Yeah. Now, as Christians, we believe in miracles. Of course. We have no problem with miracles. Yep. God heals the sick. He raises the dead. He has the power to take up his life again after, after he's been uh, killed. He walks feels, on water. Walks on water. Feeds thousands of people with a few scraps of fish and bread. Now, and these are miracles that we accept. Right. We're, we're Christians. The Bible we understand. Says yep. Yeah, the Bible says that. <laughs> now, they augment, they augment the, the natural laws that God has put in place to, to run the creation. That's why they're very rare. Miracles. Yes, and yeah, they're very rare. Uh, likewise, we realize that the origin of life on this planet is equally miraculous. Right. It's a miracle just like the other miracles that we believe in. God started out life fully functional, right. and then it progresses from there. That's a miracle. Yeah. And we reach this conclusion in two ways. Firstly, because we believe the Bible is God's Word, right. as, as we've said, so it says God created life. Secondly, because science, what we know about how the world works confirms what the scripture says. That's right. 
Now, often when you bring up the concept of first life, uh, abiogenesis, you know, evolutionists will say, well, that's not actually part of evolution. Right? You know, evolution is just part, uh, talks about the changes in living things, one thing morphing into another over millions of years, and then, well, that's not part of it. But Yeah, that, that's like saying if you're, if you're going to take a car trip from Yosemite National Park in California <laughs> to Atlanta, Georgia, the only part of your trip that's really important is the last few miles arriving into Atlanta. Right. Well, How'd you get on the road in the first what, place? What about the rest of the road trip from California? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's all part of evolution. It's all, all, the, all part of evolution. Yeah, I mean, how first life uh, begins, that's actually a critical part of the evolutionary story. Sure. Because if you're yeah. going to say, you know, we got here f through naturalistic processes, that's a huge hurdle. And the fact is, you know, um, when you talk about the general theory of evolution, you're, you're talking about many more things than just one thing changing from a lizard into a bird over millions of years. I mean, you've you got to talk about the beginning, the ultimate beginning, and that's, that's where the cosmos, where the universe come from. So you start off with cosmic evolution. It's usually some form of the Big Bang, right? Um, and then you've got to explain where the Earth came from. Well, that's geological evolution, right? right? Yeah. Earth's a hot and molten blob, cools down, gets covered in water, and, and then we need life. Life's got to con come from non-life, and then when, once we first get that life, then it's got to it's got to change through through natural selection, genetic mutation, morph from one kind into another over you know millions of years, and of course we want yeah. to explain where we came from, and that would be human evolution, right? So. This is a big thing we're talking about here. Both creationists and evolutionists have to have some sort of miracle, some something outside of science to get life started. Right. Uh, now we don't have a problem with that, but uh, evolutionists say they don't believe in miracles. But um, now, as if that wasn't enough, let's look at some additional reasons why this could never happen naturalistically. Right. Well, before 1930, uh, many. Uh, early evolutionary researchers, they assumed that the Earth's um, atmosphere was similar to today's, right? Right. Uh, so today's atmosphere contains nitrogen, oxygen, a little carbon dioxide, and water. But it was soon realized that um, organic molecules needed for life, sugars and amino acids, etc., uh, are unstable in the presence of compounds such as oxygen and water and carbon dioxide. So that was a problem. Yeah. If, if such molecules were produced in the presence of an oxidizing atmosphere like we like we have today they would quickly be destroyed so they proposed a reducing atmosphere that contained little or no free oxygen and uh, or oxidizing compounds uh, putting it all together uh, a reorganization of that would look like this so in the first column there you have the elements concerned in the second column you have today's atmosphere that's what we see in today's atmosphere and here's the third column is the theoretical reducing atmosphere that you see there, methane, carbon monoxide, you've got some hydrogen there, ammonia, nitrogen, and, and water. Right. Now, if we uh, turn to the evolutionary geologists or geochemists to ask them what we find in the rocks that they believe formed around the time that life was supposed to have evolved, yes. uh, what do they find? Well, no geochemical evidence that suggests the Earth's atmosphere ever contained large quantities of methane or ammonia. So this is a real problem for it, and if you want more information, you can see the article, The Primitive Atmosphere, at creation.com slash atmosphere. Right. Oxygen is the real problem. Right. Oxygen just, just destroys things. It destroys, it destroys compounds. They have to get rid of oxygen. That's the key <laughs> to getting life formed millions of years ago. The thing is, oxidized materials, such as hematite, are found as early as 3.8 billion years ago. Now, that's by their time scale, of course. Right. We don't, we don't accept the time scale. But... Uh, that's that's 300 million years older than when life was supposedly life supposedly evolved. Right. 
Now, um, there's a, here's a quote here uh, that says, there is also evidence for organisms complex enough to photosynthesize 3.7 billion years ago, according to evolutionists writing in Earth and planetary science letters. Well, that's a, that's a bit of a problem, isn't it? Yeah, again, <laughs> demonstrating that oxygen was there. Right. In, in the Earth, you can see it in these rocks, geochemists... Even and, according and, to their time scale. According to their time scale, yeah, within, within their thinking. Right. right? For example, here's another example. Abundant oxygen 3.46 billion years ago. This is from Penn State, an article from Penn State University. Red jasper cored from layers 3.46 billion years old suggests that not only did the oceans contain abundant oxygen then, but that the atmosphere was as oxygen-rich as it is today, according to geologists. There had, there had to be as much oxygen in the atmosphere 3.46 billion years ago as there is in today's atmosphere. Right. So and even within their own paradigms here, we're, yeah. we're noticing some huge problems. The other thing that I think a lot of people don't really understand is, you know, what you've just explained is there's been a philosophical underpinning to all of these things all the way through, right? So in the, oh yeah, well, you know, the, the atmosphere was probably like it is today, but wait, We've got to get light from non-life. Oh, well, oxygen's a problem. This is a problem. That, okay, so we're going to propose something different so that it will to, help to us to, to, yeah. to, to explain yeah. that life could come from somewhere. So you, you make that assumption, but then you go look at the data and it's like, oh, no, that, that really doesn't work. There's no evidence that so, the atmosphere was any different millions of years ago, if, again, that time scale is from their worldview, than it, than it is today. So if you're really open-minded, would it not... Be make sense then scientifically to go okay well that couldn't have happened life couldn't come from non-life so life right. must have come from life or my, life must have come from the creator right wouldn't if you have, you're really open-minded if you're really <laughs> open-minded you wouldn't just sit there and try to jury rig the the, the the system over and over again and try, you know proposing this and proposing that just to make it fit with jury rig well that's what they're doing that, right. that's exactly what's going on here right there are huge problems involving oxygen obviously if oxygen was there in the beginning that's a problem not only is is oxygen itself being there a problem there's also a problem if there's an absence of oxygen. <laughs> yes, yeah, it, it kind of goes both ways there. Uh, if there was no oxygen, there'd be no ozone. And, and a lot of viewers would be familiar with it. The ozone layer protects us from ultraviolet light. If there's no ozone layer, then, then ultraviolet light would destroy the biochemicals. Also, hydrogen cyanide polymerization, uh, it, that is alleged to lead to adenine, an important, an important biochemical, can occur only in the presence of oxygen. Right. So, you had to have like you oxygen. Said, you had to have oxygen to form some of these important biochemicals, the organic material that, that we see in life today. Right. But you can't have it because it'll break it down. You have to have it, and, and, and doesn't work. Right. So um, now many people will be familiar with the uh, Miller-Urey experiment. You right. know, they've seen them in textbooks where you've got this. Uh, you know, they, they set up this this system and they, they took these uh, chemicals and they zapped them and they got these organic compounds. They got some amino acids from them, and this was highly uh, touted as well. This is it. We, we're figuring out how life started and stuff. Yep, of course, we've now proved it. Here yeah. we go. And of course, Miller he's passed away now, and he he actually said said later on that that, that experiment had yeah. nothing to do with origins of life. But anyway, it's it's still seen in textbooks today. But um, uh, here's a problem. All, all energy sources that produce the biochemicals um, actually destroy them even faster, yeah. right? The energy sources yeah. that are needed. So the Miller-Urey experiments, they use strategically designed traps. You'll, you'll notice in the diagram, if you see it uh, here up on the, on the screen or, or in your textbook, um, 
they used these uh, traps to isolate the biochemicals as soon as they were formed so that the sparks or the UV uh, didn't destroy them. But if you didn't have those traps, even yeah. the tiny amounts that they, they, they had, they wouldn't have been formed. Right. Right. So where yeah. do these traps come from naturally, I guess, is the, is so, the point so we're making. So there's another here. problem. Yeah. And yet another problem, the biochemicals would react with each other. If you could isolate them from the environment, that's okay, but they'd react with each other to break each other down. For example, sugars react destructively with amino acids, uh, but both have to be present for the cell to form. Uh, and ab abundant calcium ions would precipitate fatty acids They're, that's necessary for the cell membranes. And phosphate, necessary for such uh, vital compounds as DNA, RNA, ATP, and so on. But metal ions readily form complexes with amino acids, hindering them from more important reactions. Right. So you've got reactions going on, even if, even, if the, even if you could separate those out, like Miller and Urey were trying to do with their little trap there, yeah. they'd react with each other to break each other down. Right. So now, obviously, living things have all these reactions and stuff, but there's programmed machinery and there's, there's you know, physical separation and, 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 and timed delivery of, of things and stuff like that in right. living things. But if you're just talking about random processes and they mix together, it doesn't work. Yep. You know, one of the big problems, too, is that there's no geological uh, evidence uh, anywhere on the planet for, for this so-called alleged primordial soup that we keep hearing about, right? That life, you know, evolved in this, this soup. I mean, you'll see this on popular shows like Star Trek when they're, they're trying to talk about first life forming. And, yeah, and, but yeah. in science textbooks as well. It's not just science fiction, right? So there's, there's nothing there. Also, also, depolymerization is faster than polymerization. Now, polymerization, for those not everyone knows what that means, it's a chemical reaction in which a polymer is formed, right. quite simply. So, in other words, very simply, things fall apart far more readily than they go together. Right. You put something together, it's going to fall apart very, very quickly. And, and polymerize will hydrolyze, that, that they'll, they'll split into other compounds in water over geological time, these, these supposed millions of years. Right. The water's just going to break them up. So actually these long time periods that we keep hearing about too, they, they don't mm -hmm. actually help evolutionary theory. No. Uh, because these biochemicals are destroyed faster than they're formed. So. Um, it doesn't help really at all. The longer you stretch it out, the, the, the worse your, your, your problem is because it's just going to fall to pieces. That's right. And we're zipping through some of this stuff here. If you want more information on that, go to creation.com slash polymer for the polymerization problem. And, uh, and for, for all of this and, and a lot more information, you can look at um, a great article, just a kind of a summary article by Dr. Jonathan Sarfati, one of our physical chemists uh, on staff with our U.S. office, creation.com slash loopholes. Right. That'll take you to an article. Uh, it's called 15 Loopholes in the Origin of Life. So life from non-life. Life from non-life, <coughs> which requires a miracle, whether you're a creationist or evolutionist, because there is a law that says that only, li that don't, only life produces life. Right. And that's so all we've ever observed. That's all we've ever observed. That's it's what science says. scientific law. Yep. Uh, evolution says exactly the opposite. So that's what we're talking about. Let's move on with, with some other problems in the naturalistic way of trying to explain life from non-life. Uh, polymerization, it's, again, remember that definition from last time? Polymerization, putting things together, putting together polymer, requires bifunctional molecules. That's molecules that can combine with two others and is stopped by a small fraction, a small fraction of unifunctional molecules, molecules that can only combine with one other thing. Thus, it blocks one end of a growing chain. If you have, if you right, need, it's you growing need a and chain you get those, on both ends, it's going to stop it. Bifunctional. If you have a unifunctional one, it ends the chain. It right. stops the building of 
of the building blocks of life, the, the, the big chains of whatever instruction code or polymers you're trying to build, proteins in any case. That's right. So that is, that's another huge problem uh, with the evolutionary scenario. And Miller's experiments actually produced five times more unifunctional uh, functional molecules than, than bifunctional molecules, yeah. correct? So yeah, that's, uh, yeah. that's another reason why the miller urus experiment and those other sparking type experiments just fail at, at almost all levels. Yeah. Now, again, we want to mention that obviously we, we're setting up all these problems, but you, people might be thinking, yeah, but in living things, living things can deal with these problems you're mentioning, Once right? Once you have a living system, absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. So, so living things actually separate, they ver regulate the various compounds, all of those kinds of things that would happen, you know. Um, but what we're just talking about life, you know, when all those safeguards aren't set up, you don't have a living thing, then these right. are problems. So here's some more problems. Um, sugars are destroyed quickly after the reaction, uh, which is supposed to have formed them. Yeah, they don't last long. They don't last real long. So, uh, and also the alkaline conditions needed to form sugars are incompatible um, with acid conditions required to form polypeptides with condensing agents. So, you, you need these things, but if, they, if, if they're not working together in a regulated format... Uh, with with programmed biochemical machinery already yeah. in place, w with a ton of you know genetic information already there, it, it's just not happening by chance. Yeah, that's for sure. We're, we're we're breezing through some of these things very very quickly here, but that it, it's sort of we don't want to give the impression that these are lightly dealt with, that 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 these can be easily swept away. Right. Each one of these things we're mentioning are huge, Massive huge problems, problems yeah. for, for the evolutionary scenario of life from lifelessness. Yeah. Uh, here's another one. Life requires homochiral polymers, and you see these on the screen here. It, it means all the same handedness. Proteins only have left-handed amino acids, while DNA and RNA only have right-handed sugars. Now, the, the Miller-type sparking experiments produce uh, uh, racemates. Uh, equal mixtures of both left and right-handed molecules. That, that doesn't work. That's right. As a matter we of don't fact, find that in life. <laughs> in, in living things, when, when, you know, when you die, your amino acids actually turn back to a mixture of left and right-handed amino acids. Well, that's exactly what Miller's experiment created. He didn't create a, a recipe for life because you need left-handed amino acids. He created a recipe for a death. A recipe for death. <laughs> right? Oh, my. That, that, that's what you are when you die. There's actually a... a they try to give a dating method, you know, some of these CSI type things, amino acid racemization. They can tell how long the body's been dead because the amino acids gradually get to a sense of the most disorderly. Yeah, 50, a recipe for death. I've yeah. never heard it put that way yeah. by any, anyone before. <laughs> for more information on that, just go to creation.com slash shiralty. Uh, <laughs> it's the word on your screen. Yeah. <laughs> I said it before. Homochiral. Uh, so Homochiral, chiral, yeah. yes. Now, the origin of the, the coding system on proteins, on DNA, that's also an enigma, right? Uh, yeah. So is yeah. the origin yeah. of, the, of the message encoded, which is that's not related to the chemistry. Um, I mean, that's like saying, you know, well, the, the, the ink on, on paper, you know, is somehow related to the message that's on the printed page. Yes, of course it's not. It's not. You know, the information is representative. You, you could write that information out in twigs. There's no information in little sticks, but if I went and ran outside right now and got a bunch of sticks together and, and arranged them in a certain way, they could have information. Right. So it, yeah. it's a huge problem. And you can check out a, uh, an article called creation.com slash replicating um, to look into that. So we're going to be back and we'll show you some more problems. 
with all the responsibilities that most pastors have, it is often too much to ask them to keep up with all the latest science that supports the Bible and creation. The Information Department at CMI reviews the leading evolutionary science publications so that our scientists and speakers are both constantly updated with the latest evolutionist information and able to refute it. Give your pastor a break. Book a CMI speaker into your church for a faith-strengthening Sunday morning message. Visit creation.com to contact your nearest CMI office. All right, welcome back to Creation Magazine Live. In our final, uh, final little uh, segment before we say goodbye here, we'll look at a feedback Ooh. that we got. Uh, an email. We often get emails to our website. People have questions or, or they want to challenge, uh, challenge creation in some way, something, some article that we've read. So here's a feedback. Uh, and this person, Paul Smith, or not, not Smith, Paul S., don't know, if it was Calvin Smith. Yeah. Uh, Paul S. from uh, Canada, he writes, Thank you so much for your ministry. I have a question, and I feel a little embarrassed because this is the second question I'm asking your ministry in one week. <laughs> he said this. But, yeah. We, yeah, we generally limit questions, so, <laughs> but uh, he don't want to send a whole lot of questions. Uh, I sincerely hope... I'm not abusing the privilege. My question is, although I'm a biblical creationist and believe in the young earth, is it improper to watch videos or read materials by ministries who believe that the universe and earth is billions of years old? I'm confused on this point since I'm aware of ministries that are compromised in this way who nonetheless have very good insights into the resurrection of Jesus or the use, to use another example, provide great evidences for the reliability of the New Testament. I didn't search your website before asking this question, so in conclusion, although Christians who hold to an old universe belief are compromised on Genesis history, should their ministries be avoided totally? Yeah, right. now that question got slated to me. It was, yeah, we divide up the questions. I and thank actually... Lita Cosner, our information specialist for that one. No, that's fine. We, we get these, these questions distributed amongst all our, all our uh, yeah, speakers. Yeah, we try to and, share the load. Yeah, yeah. Well, really, I, I broke this down as I, I, I looked at his question and I thought about it. Really, I thought, really, it came to two points. Uh, number one, how can a Christian know whether to trust the Bible teaching of an individual or ministry? Even, let's say, we're going to find a new church, right? You, you yeah. move to a new area. Yeah. How do you know, you know where to go and how do you know whether to trust uh, uh, their Bible teaching? And two, should we trust the teachings of an individual or a ministry that doesn't hold to a biblical creationist position? And I mean, we're, we could step on a lot of toes here because there's a lot of, you know, great men and women of God that love Jesus and and don't believe yeah, uh, Genesis as, as sure. plainly written, right? So, really, what I tried to explain to him was number one, people think sometimes that we're the ministry that you know just we want to argue about science and the Bible and all this kind of stuff. That's not our position. If you really understand CMI, what we're saying is. We take the Bible as plainly written. It's, it's right. our authority. And if you want to give that a term, we, we take the literal, historical, grammatical interpretation of Scripture yeah, we to be the way the we look at it. take the text as it's written, right. as intended by the author. We try not to impose yeah. anything upon it, etc. We let it speak to us. That's right. why we say that the Bible, you know, God created in the six days, around 6,000 years ago, and we make all these claims, because that's what that's the Scripture says. That's what the says. Bible says. Right? <laughs> that's very plain, yeah. So, um, you know, really... Uh, what I explained to to Paul is that if if you're going around and you meet, I believe, well, we believe that, that if you're going around and you meet a, a Bible teacher and he says, no, I don't take the grammatical, literal, historical view of Scripture. I I don't want to take what it says to us as plainly written. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna make it have its own slant or my slant or whatever. I wouldn't trust their Bible teaching. 
because the Bible says we're to take God's word as plainly written. Yeah. Right? You, and we've, you, we've talked about this before. If, if that's their perspective, you wouldn't know where they're on and where they're off. I mean, You'd have nothing to compare it to because you yeah. can't say, you can't be a Berean going, oh yeah, that matches the scripture because oh, the scripture can mean whatever you want. Today's episode was originally formatted for broadcast TV and is available online at the links in the podcast show notes. Both are produced by Creation Ministries International, publishers of Creation Magazine. For more information for the accuracy of the Bible, visit creation.com. You can also donate to the ministry at creation.com slash donate. And thanks for listening. 